When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Your breath is sweet. Your eyes are like two jewels in the sky. Your back is straight. Your hair is smooth on the pillow where you lie. But I don't sense affection, no gratitude or love. Your loyalty is not to me, but to the stars above. One more cup of coffee for the road. One more cup of coffee for I go to the valley below. This is Bob Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly. And joining us this week to talk about one more cup of coffee, Valley Below, from 1976's Desire, is fellow Bobcat, Jesse Scott. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me on and for giving me such a fantastic song to discuss. <laughs> yeah, you were uh, you mentioned this early on. Now I'm gonna maybe this is not a smart way to start the show, but okay, this is like not one of my favorites of his. <laughs> wow. Now, now I don't with I don't uh, hold it in the same esteem as say Joey. A couple of songs, a couple of songs further down in the album, but Phew. it is it has never been particularly one of my favorites. So I'm sort of interested. Well, not sort of interested. I am interested as to why you like the song so much. And uh, I'm sort of interested in hearing, um, I don't want to say your arguments, but I want to hear your take on, on this song. Before we get to that, Jesse, you're new to the show. So, of course, I got to ask you, how did you become a fan of Bob? Um, it, it's kind of a long and sordid story. But when I was in eighth grade, my teacher was a Ukrainian immigrant. And Bob Dylan was coming to play my hometown, which is not a very large town, a population of maybe 60,000 at the time. And as a result, he brought, I think, uh, he brought one of Dylan's greatest hit co- hits collections to the class to play it. And I just thought it was the worst thing I'd ever heard. Of. <laughs> it was awful, awful. I couldn't believe anyone listened to this. And I was 13 years old, of course. So that, that stuck in my head. And of course, I didn't go to that concert and play in my hometown. Um, then a few years later, I was playing guitar in a band in high school. Friends of mine loved Dylan, hated him again. Couldn't stand it. I just hated it. And sometime, I think when I was in my mid-20s, it finally hit me. It was either with Bringing It All Back Home or Highway 61, typical entry albums. And, you know, I just dove deep from there on in. And an uh, interesting little uh, anecdote is that any artist I really love, be it musical or visual, that I really love. I start off hating and despising. This has been a pattern in my life and I don't know why, but it was the same was true with Dylan. But I'm like whole hog. I love his modern stuff up to rough and rowdy ways. Um, I have a few songs that bother me. Joey, I don't love, um, as, as you mentioned. Um, but overall, I like it all. Yeah. So, okay, I was about to ask you, if you hated it so much, why would you even give Bringing, bringing It All Back Home or Highway 61 a chance? But then you just explained that that's your MO, is that you you tend to, hate these things and then you come at them later and you realize you love them. So was that in your mind at that point? You were like, well, maybe I've changed my mind at this point. Were you thinking like that? I mean, why, why would that, why would those albums even sort of cross your path? If you were, if you had such a visceral negative reaction early on? So it's a good question. I, honestly, I don't think I think of it consciously taste change. Um, as you get older, maybe I heard something like subterranean homesick blues or it's all right. Ma that drew me in something like that. And I, I, since I was musical, I'd always played in bands and played lots of instruments. So my father was in bands my whole life. You know, I'd always have people who loved Bob Dylan around me. And so 
it's kind of omnipresent, but without me really digging in. So I just had to dig in one time and, you know, finally it hooked me. And I think Joan Baez actually has a quote and she says, not everyone gets Dylan, but those who do get him, it goes really, really deep. And, and mm-hmm. I completely get that. And, you know, I ran into Joan Baez uh, at an airport in London a couple of years ago. And wow. Let's talk to her quite a lot about that stuff but I also didn't want to pester it was quite interesting but uh, I couldn't help but think of that quote at the time wow that's that's really cool did you like I, I have to ask about did you like get her autograph or something or you just talk to her or what so I'm not an autograph type or a gotcha. selfie type but I, I talked to her yeah we were luckily we were in like the virgin clubhouse lounge and she, she was <laughs> just finished playing in London and she had one of her band members with her carrying an odd instrument, like an oud or something like that, and uh, just chatted to her. And I was mostly commenting on her because I didn't want to be one of those people pestering her about Steve Jobs or Bob Dylan, just saying like, wow, what a life you've had and stuff. I'm really honored to meet you, I kind of said, and shuffled off. I didn't want to pester her, basically, though she was sat only a few seats from me on the plane, so it was hard. That's really cool. That's great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean – Yes, you don't want to, you never want to like, you meet someone and you never want to like feel like you're asking them just to ask them about another person they know. That always seems so rude. Right, exactly. Uh, Like like, if I met Jacob Dylan, that's all I would ask him about. Right, which (laughs) you know that you know the look you would get if you did that. (laughs) They would be like, okay, all right. So, (laughs) well, that's all right. That's uh, that's really interesting. So now you mentioned you've been in bands. Have you, uh, have you or your band ever? tried to cover a Dylan song I you know it seems like a thing that I bands covered, tend to do yeah well absolutely as you know like all the covers of Dylan songs but I wholeheartedly believe in the Columbia ad no one does a Dylan like Dylan um, <laughs> I can name a few that are up there high but we haven't done any like professionally or like in performance but I cover Dylan songs and make up my own versions all the time Rob like you can't help it anyone who plays an instrument I think they do that if they're into Dylan so I do it all the time I learn songs off rough and rowdy ways because they're so unique and fun to play now, what, what does that mean, make up your own version? I don't know exactly know what that means. Well, it's like I don't try to ape or exactly copy the way Dylan would do something because no one gotcha. can do Dylan like Dylan. So, um, for example, I, I play Moonshiner a lot, and I like to play it in kind of a, a slow country waltz kind of version instead of the typical, you know, the more folky picking way that Dylan plays it. I've been doing Standing in the Doorway lately from Time Out of Mind, and I also hmm. done that kind of with a country tinge, so, you know. That's really cool. I said I would love to be able to to do that. A couple of times I've had we've had musicians on the show that can play the tune while I'm talking to them. But again, it just seems like magic to me that you can create those. And I know it's just quote unquote just notes, but I for, as someone who can't do it, I just I'm like, how, how do you do that? It seems amazing to me. Well, I think we all think that about many things Dylan does. This guy is an encyclopedia. Whenever I, I hear him talk, like theme time radio hour, this is encyclopedic knowledge of music and the vast breadth of it blows me away. It's amazing. Yeah, how yeah, it really. It? Yeah. yeah, it really. How does he keep all that? It's like that old story that uh, he had where he was like uh, sparring with somebody because uh, he does that. He has like a, you know, like for exercise or whatever. And mm-hmm. somebody, I think it was like Sugar, not Sugar Robinson, but somebody a uh, professional boxer like really clocked him and <laughs> the guy was like oh no you know and he's like are you all right and bob's like no i still got some few songs in here so don't worry about it <laughs> i've never heard that that's fantastic. oh no that's great i just love that idea of just like he's got a sense of humor about because i mean you know yeah i'm sure bob dylan's paying you to spar but you don't want to hit him too hard i mean good lord yeah really yeah. Uh, imagine he gave bob dylan amnesia he couldn't remember yeah. any of yeah. The uh, lawsuits from uh, Columbia Records will be forthcoming. Uh, so uh, have you seen him live? 
Yeah, I've seen them live a lot of times. Um, not like some people on the Bobcats. I've seen them 75 or 100 times. I've probably seen them a dozen, a few dozen. I go as often as I can. I don't tend to travel too far for them anymore. But I might be, I don't know how many folks you've had on this show, but I might be the person who lives closest to Bob Dylan's main residence because Point Dune in Malibu is probably only a 40-minute drive for me. Wow. So yeah. Have you ever been tempted to go over there? I mean, no, you can't get close, obviously. <laughs> no, no. Other than the Google Maps, Google Earth stuff, no. I, again, uh, I won't pester him. I do like the Christmas lights joke that people do. And, and <laughs> that's about it. That's really good. Cool. Wow. That's, I, yeah. I, I would be too, I would not be able to resist that urge. Again, I know you can't get close because he's got yeah. you know, a huge piece of property, but still, just just to know I was in within you know, spitting distance would be really kind of amazing. So what did you think of the shows when you saw them? Were you, when you saw your first one, I'm assuming it was after you became, after post Highway 61, post bringing it all back home, you were a fan at that point? Yes, uh, absolutely. And um, again, I've heard someone say this. I think a Bob Dylan show is like a lottery ticket. Like you never know what you're going to get. You might just, uh, I bought a ticket and I lost it. But then sometimes you come up really big and it's great. And that, that's why we keep going. And uh, especially at the age he is now and the way he's been performing on this tour, like I, I have to go. So we, yeah, I love seeing him. I always get something out of it, but definitely some shows are transcendent and some are a little bit ho-hum, depending on his mood, I guess, for the night. When was the last time you saw him? Um, I actually saw him at Hyde Park in London with Neil Young, where Neil Young played wow. first, and, and then Dylan. And I was really annoyed because they played Ireland, the two of them, the day after, and they actually did when the circle will be unbroken together, and they didn't do that in London. I was <laughs> a little miffed, but at least I think I, I've probably seen the last time Neil Young and Bob Dylan will kind of perform together. So I feel lucky with that. Wow, that's really that's really cool. That's really yeah. amazing. So, okay, well, let's talk about uh, one more cup of coffee. Valley below. This was uh, one of the early songs Dylan wrote uh, when he was sort of. I know he wasn't really sitting down to work on Desire. It was just he had been traveling a lot and he started writing. And I think the first kind of the first song he wrote, kind of post Blood on the Tracks, was Abandoned Love, which of course they tried for Desire. And it didn't make it on there. And then apparently this was the next one. This was uh, not a song, even though most of that record was co-written with Jacques Levy. This song is not. This was a, a sole uh, Dylan effort. And, you know, he's given different uh, stories as to where the, you know, the inspiration came from. He talks about a gypsy festival that he saw in France. He told very long stories on stage during the Rolling Thunder Review. Uh, kind of getting into the details of this. But uh, what is it about this song that uh, made you want to talk about it? Um, I think it's a very unique Dylan song to begin with. Um, anyone who says Dylan can't sing, and again, that drives me insane. The guy has like 10 or 15 different voices he sings in, but just the opening verse on this, his singing is fantastic. And it's really unique from a, for a Bob Dylan song. From a musical point of view, it uses what, what they call the Andalusian cadence in Spain, like the flamenco cadence, which is really unique. I don't know if any other Dylan song uses that chord progression. And also the words, they make kind of a subtle story. And as you said, like Jacques Levy had no input into this song whatsoever. So Dylan had this going before. And I, I think 
it probably gave Levy like a hint of where Dylan wanted to go with the album for, for his lyrics. But the song really moves me. It's, it's really unique in that, that chord progression, the Andalusian cadence, as I mentioned, Dylan singing in it. Again, I can't think of another song where he sings like that. Emmy Lou Harris's harmonies are very important. Um, Scarlett Rivera's violin is so important. And even Rob Stoner's bass, because Dylan's playing very simple chords, but Rob Stoner's playing these really nice melodic lines on the bass too. And this even gets further accentuated in like the live versions in Rolling Thunder. It's, it's pretty mind blowing. So I, I, I just love the song from top to bottom. As I said, lyrics, chord progression, melody, all the, uh, the arrangements. It's fantastic. All right. So you, you can't drop a phrase like Andalusian cadence and not explain to me what the hell that means. Cause I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. I, I was thinking that. Uh, well, so a lot of, uh, quite a lot of pop songs use this um, from Ray Charles hit the road, Jack. It's kind of that descending ding, 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 ding. And the thing that makes it really unique is the last chord is, is a major instead of a minor. And, um, it comes from like, it's, I don't know if it's actually originated, but it's used a lot in Spanish flamenco music in the South of Spain, which I think also probably adds kind of that gypsy-esque feel to the song too, because, you know, it's Spanish gypsy caravans. It's a, it's a common image, but, uh, Leonard Cohen actually has a great online video to speak of another great songwriter. I love when he was given a, an award in Spain and, and he had a few, guitar lessons with like a Spanish flamenco guitarist and he learned the Andalusian cadence which is basically just again these four descending chords which are get a little odd at the end because it's a major and he said all of his songs are based off of that cadence afterwards (laughs) so it's pretty unique um it's a unique thing and it's again it's the only Dylan song I can think of that does that though a lot of Bob Dylan songs use um kind of ascending and descending chord progressions like including like a Rolling Stone famous ones like that. So that's very common. Um, yeah. I don't know if that explained it that well, but I tried to give you an idea. Of it. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. I could play the chord progression on a guitar for you if you're curious to hear it. Yes, so, of course. I don't know if this is not true, but like that. So that's the A minor. You hear that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, just happened to have that guitar here, but the, I was doing those little flourishes that Rob Stoner does on the bass, actually, which is fantastic. And uh, again, it's it's unique for Dylan. Sounds great. And he certainly, as you mentioned, his singing is unusual. The the intonations really that unusual. he's doing with that, uh, you know, where he's like stretching out that layer. It's got that kind of uh, Middle Eastern sound. I hate to use a phrase that's like clumsy like that, but it's got that, Agreed. you know. You know, like that kind of, you know, that sort of laughing. Uh, that's, and that's, that is unique to all of his others. Like he doesn't sing another song in his whole canon that sounds like that. Not at all. Uh, it's so hard to sing. Yeah, it's almost like the Islamic calls to prayer you hear when you are in like the yes, Middle East. Yes, that's, that's right, what I, I should have said. That's it's a amazing much better way of putting it. <laughs> it's amazing to me that he doesn't do it because obviously he can do that. And again, to my point, people say Dylan can't sing. Like That's some impressive singing to me there. I, I think it sounds fantastic. I wish he did it more. It's interesting that he chooses to use that inflection for the song when he himself has talked about that this was supposedly inspired by like a gypsy festival in France. So mm-hmm. it doesn't have a particular Middle Eastern, you know, the background is not necessarily Middle Eastern, but yet that's how he's choosing. So, which of course sets a certain mood for the song. I mean, so it sort of puts it in a place, even though he himself is saying, no, 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 I got it inspired from somewhere else. 
Absolutely. And what I would say to that, we all know Dylan is like a voracious reader and his memory is unlike anyone who I've ever come across. And, you know, the actual gypsy or Roma tradition, they say they've kind of started in India, worked their ways through Egypt and the Middle East and a lot of gypsy music in the south of France, even going to more like closer to that era in 30s, like Django Reinhardt, they do have some of those inflections in there. So if he's trying to set that gypsy-like mood or tone, I could see that being the inspiration for that kind of melody. And he continues on with the song, Your Daddy, He's an Outlaw and a Wanderer by Trade. He'll teach you how to pick and choose and how to throw the blade. He oversees his kingdom so no stranger does intrude. His voice it trembles as he calls out for another plate of food. And then we get the, the chorus again. Uh, you know, when you when you listen to Desire in, in total, you can certainly see how each song, uh, and this is you know, partly was the inspiration from from Jack Lee, uh, Jacques Levy talks about it in, in different interviews that these are each song in this record, you know, with some minor exceptions, they're like little movies. Each one is its own little movie. There, it's a very globe trop globe tropping tropping trotting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, globe dropping, excuse me, uh, record. You know, you've got it opens in New Jersey. That's exciting. Uh, and then we've got wherever the hell ISIS is. And then we've got Mozambique. And then we've got this. And Oh Sister seems to be, I'm not sure where that is. And then we're in the streets of New York, Durango. And then we've got this island. And then the beaches, uh, you know, where Sarah's exposed. So each one of them is really like its own little movie. And with its own set of characters, and you know, there's been talk over the years about certain Dylan songs are going to be turned into a movie. For one point, Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts was going to be turned into a movie, and of course, they made a movie out of Hurricane, out mm-hmm. of the, out of his life story. But I can like when I listen to this song, I to me it it works better in its context, and that it's okay. This is a series of sort of world, uh, you know, globe trotting stories that he's telling even though for this one i have to say i have really only a bare bones idea of exactly what is going on i agree to me that this this has always struck me almost as some kind of fantasy or, or fairy tale story like i couldn't place where it is is it based on the south of france with the king of gypsies as you stated um some some people i asked they have completely different images of this uh grayley heron who i spoke to who wrote a book on time out of mind he, he thinks of it as like the valley being somewhere dark and foreboding and maybe like the Psalms reference to valley in the shadow of death could be there. Um, I've spoken to a friend, Ben, who runs the Dylan album by album podcast. If you listen to that one as well. And he pictures uh, an old man in the top of a valley finishing, finishing his coffee and smoking and uh, just ready to go on some journey somewhere. Everyone's got their own vision with this song. And it just, I think it connects to people in a unique way. Yeah, uh, the, the the final verse where he says that your sister sees the future like your mama and yourself. You never re- learned to read or write. There's no books upon your shelf and your pleasure knows no limits. Your voice is like a meadowlark, but your heart is like an ocean, mysterious and dark. Again, your voice is like a meadowlark. He really knows how to turn people's heads uh, when he wants to. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, I always, when I hear it, I listen to it, I say, okay, this is a guy who stumbles into this, t- again, another Dylan song where, we don't know what the hell time period we're in. Is this the old West? Is this, you know, is this, this seems sort of a pre uh, industrialization kind of place, but we don't really know, but he's, I, he's meeting this family and the father is what training the girls to be training the daughters to be assassins. That's probably a little, a little romantic, but the, the line about uh, you know, how to, how to throw the blade is teaching these 
girls how to protect themselves because they're in a dangerous, uh, wherever they are is dangerous. And so he's teaching them how to throw the blade and he's possessive of them and that they're going to always have to stick around. And this guy, our narrator has fallen in love with this young woman. Uh, but he knows and it's, he knows it's not going anywhere. The thing that I don't say throws me, but the line about your cup of coffee, that feels modern to me. You know what I mean? Like he's talking about going to the Valley and meeting this woman who, who's never learned to read or write. And yet, where would you get a cup of coffee from? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it feels like that's that's from the, that feels like a different era than what the rest of the song is taking place. Yeah, that, that's a really good point, Rob. I haven't, I haven't even thought of where they would get the coffee, but it's true. If it's so rustic, it, like maybe they could get some tea from local herbs, but you know, <laughs> coffee beans might not be that applicable. Yeah. And if they are drinking it, is it like cowboy coffee where the grinds are just soaking in the cup and getting all the grits in your teeth? Yeah, it's a complete different image of the entire thing. I always thought of coffee. It's the warming drink, you know, get your physical and mental juices going in the morning for a journey, a journey home, a journey back to the reality you once knew. But it it is quite a stark contrast to the rest of the song and that imagery because I wouldn't picture, at least my my image, again, somewhere in the south of France or maybe Spain, gypsy caravans lodged up. I don't know, coffee beans may be pretty scarce at the time. Now that uh, Universal... I guess owns these songs. I mean, it, it was only a matter of time until <laughs> this Don't appears in a commercial. Somewhere. No, 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 no. It'll break my heart. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's going to happen, Jesse. It's going to happen one of these days. Uh, but, but yeah, like I said, so, I mean, I like this song. It's just, it never has had a whole lot of emotional resonance with me the way some of the other songs have. I listen to it and I certainly, I love the, harmonies with uh emmy lou harris and and dylan certainly sings it very convincingly but i just i listen to it and i go okay like you know that's kind of like the sum total uh of my response now this is something that he obviously really uh was enjoying playing right after he hit the road now this has only been played 151 times uh live which is not a lot considering the song is uh, like 40 years old at this point but it was a staple of the Rolling Thunder review. I mean, uh, and there was, if when you, if you bought the, uh, the Rolling Thunder review box set that came out a couple of years ago, there's like nine versions of it, uh, from live, live versions. And then it appeared, uh, he covered, he not covered it. He didn't cover it himself, but it also did a live version on the Budokan record. I'm going to talk about that in a second, but all of these, what do you think about this as a live song? What did you think of these as in performance? Well, the Rolling Thunder ones take my breath away. And um, you, the, that line, your, your voice is like a metal lark. Like, there couldn't be a more perfect song to have Emilio Harris singing back up with you. And then with Joan Baez on Rolling Thunder. Like, I, I think the Rolling Thunder versions are stunning. They knock me out. The drums are much louder and much more mm-hmm. prominent in those versions, which I really like. I think it lends itself to the song. Um, as we're going through to later live versions, I lis- listened to the last time he did it, which I think was Munich, April 2009. I think that was a very good version too. Budokan, it's not exactly to my taste. It's a little too bouncy. I have some trouble with that record. I don't know your feelings on it, Rob. But the Budokan arrangements are either completely nuts or completely awesome, and they might probably be both. True, true. <laughs> I-, I can agree with that. That whole record, I'm just like, really? This is how he's going to do it? 
okay. It's like he tried to take it to some extreme and just to see what happens. And that's what's great about Dylan Live because he just can change his songs up at will. And again, I shouldn't talk too much musical terms. I know you don't want to get into that, but no, 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 no. I like all, no, I I really like it because it said that's, that's a big blind spot for me. So I, I like that discussion. Well, one of the things Dylan is known for is he can transpose songs in an instant. When I say transpose, it means he can be playing a song in one key and he can shift it to another key and he can just do that. And so like really good musicians can do that very simply, but a lot of people have to write it out or look at a chord chart. But uh, the most famous version, of course, is from Tangled Up in Blue, which he was playing in G the whole time. And then I think it was Kevin Odegaard said, hey, look, let's put it in A. And Bob had to reach higher in his register and it just changed the whole feel for his song. But it's kind of a savant-like ability Dylan has always had just to transpose songs. So I think that's really interesting. His arrangements live are constantly keep people guessing. And sometimes he strikes gold, other times it might not be as pretty. Yeah, I was listening to the Budokan one, having not listened to it in a very long time, and I thought, "Wow, I wouldn't think you could get saxophone into this song," and yet, <laughs> yet there it is. So okay, must uh, have a shoehorn there to uh-huh. stick it in. All right, all right. It's, it's, that, that record is that record is bonkers. Uh, so it's um, yeah, yeah. Now there is, um, from what I read, there is an alternate take of this. That mm-hmm. was recorded in the studio. I've never heard that version. Uh, have you ever had a chance to, to hear that bootleg? Well, I heard one on YouTube, but it was just the rehearsal at SIR Studios. Right, which appeared the on the boot, which appeared on the set. Yeah, yeah. So I, no, I didn't know there was an alternate take, but as we all know, no, like the recording of Desire, they tried a lot of different lineups. So I have to wonder when they had that big lineup, was there a take there? I feel like it would be really noisy, but I'd love to hear it all the same. Yeah, according, again, according to uh, the Clinton Halen Recording Sessions book, which again, which is now you know incomplete because he didn't have mm-hmm. a complete picture when he wrote it. Uh, but it was, it seems like it was done early on, uh, very early on in the process, and then the the version on the record is the one done later, with uh, where the band got stripped down a little because apparently like, things got insane where they had like twenty musicians going all at the same time. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And then it was, I think it was Rob Stoner who came in and said, "Whoa, whoa, 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 hold on." <laughs> we got we got thirty people in this room. Let's 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 pare this down, and that's the that's the version we hear. I, I mean, again, uh, it it from what I've heard of heard from people, and even from uh, Joan Osborne, who I was fortunate enough to have on the show many many years ago. Harmonizing with Bob Dylan is uh, perilous because he does not give you any indication of what he wants. You have to literally just watch his lips, and hopefully you catch up at the right moment, which is, just seems. I mean, obviously, if he wanted to do it differently, uh, he would. Uh, but he obviously chooses. He likes that kind of, I guess, flying by the seat of your pants sort of thing. But she, there's other uh, songs on Desire where I think the harmonies are a little shakier. Uh, but this one, she's she's right in there with him. I, I agree. And I, I've heard that, yeah, not only harmonizing with Dylan, but playing with them. Like Rob Stoner and all the people are like, you got to watch his hands. you got to watch his foot. They're just looking for any kind of visual cues they can to – to figure out what he's doing. And Emmylou Harris, natural harmony singer, great uh, training, singing harmonies with Graham Parsons. I-, I think she did it well. I know she disparages her performances on the record. She really doesn't Does like she them, really? Yeah, yeah. I, she, she said that because, you know, Dylan didn't give her any warning, didn't give her a chance to rehearse. He just did it. But she thinks uh, she's not pleased with them. But I think mm. it came out okay. I feel like Desire's getting a lot of, uh, a little bit at least of... Um, 
a little bit of hate, maybe that's probably too strong of a word in the Dylan community of late. Like you, you tell me you don't like this song. I know Laura from definitely Dylan says Sarah's like her least favorite Dylan song or, or something <laughs> along those lines recently. I was like, what's going on with this? Joey, I can accept but beyond that. Come on guys. <laughs> so as you were saying earlier, like you, you haven't you know, reconciled in your mind, like what the song is about. So what, what is it? What is it that is so powerful for you? What is it just the mood that he evokes? Is it just, I mean, what, what is it that makes this uh, so work so well for you? Even though in your mind, as you say, you don't have like a really great idea of what exactly is happening. Yeah. And that's what I like about it. I, I don't like that. It's too clear cut. It takes me to another place. It, it's like a legend or a fantasy that I don't know. And for, again, it, it's very Dylan-esque because all of his, um, kind of biblical theological allusions and, and things he's done like those in songs this almost could be a story like, who knows i don't know the bible as well as many dylanologists probably do or theologians but there could be some stories in the bible that this is a lifted aspects from like like psalms in the valley of death i don't know it's just it's that i love those kind of mystical stories where you're uncertain what's going on but there's something very intense and very magical feeling about it. And that's the feeling I get from this when I hear it. He's talking, this is uh, the, the quotes he has about this song are, are, are long and I'm not going to get into all of them, but I do think it was interesting. He told this to uh, in some interviews with Paul Zollo from sound song talk and, uh, and Jonathan Cott in 1977, he mentioned a few years ago, I went over the South of France when the gypsies have their festival. It happens to be their high holy holiday, like Christmas time. Anyway, that particular day happens to be the day I was born on. It's my birthday also. I'd heard about that for years, and I went over to check it out just like that. I did. So I arrived over a town on the ocean in the south of France, and all the gypsies were there. They were there from Hungary, Romania, France, England, Germany, all of them, all of them countries, just all along the beach. What they do for their holidays, just party for a week. So I managed to meet the king of the gypsies over there. I don't know how old he was. He was wearing a derby hat when I met him. He had 16 wives and 125 children. And I was very impressed with that. I love I mean, it. Come on. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, he, he's such a world-class fabulist that I don't know how anybody gets upset uh, if people even do anymore when they catch him making something up because he's been doing it his whole life. I mean, come on. I mean, he's, I, I agree. He's, he's a master of the myth and we need more of this in the world, especially in things like pop culture, because the mystique, it's so important, especially in these days of social media. And now we get into fake news and bias social media. It's nice to see someone that just comes out and just makes something up. I love it. I, I think the only modern person I can think of that does that, speaking of the white stripes covers, Jack White does that really well. You know, him and sister Meg and they're really ex-husband and wife. Like he's really good at self-mythologizing, which I'm sure he learned from Dylan. I do want to talk about the White Stripes cover in a second, but just on that train of thought about other fabulists out there, the ones I think of are the Cohen brothers. Oh yeah. And, and of course, you know, Bob has, they've used his songs in different, uh, different films of theirs, the big Lebowski. And of course he's even a character in uh, inside Llewellyn Davis. I mean, the whole thing is sort of wrapped around his uh, arrival in Greenwich village. And one of the things I, first of all, two things with the Cohen brothers, one is that opening crawl in Fargo where it mentions that this is a true story, which is completely made up. It's not a true story. And, you know, I remember at the time people were mad about them, mad at them about that. And they're just like, well, like, what? so what? You know, <laughs> like, what are you going to do? Go to movie jail? What's the difference? You know, they're making it up. They're trying to set a mood in there. And then the other one I love, which is even a deeper cut, 
was uh, their film uh, Blood Simple. Have you ever seen that movie? Yeah, a long time ago. That's one of their earliest films, it's I their think. first film, yeah. That's I love Blood, Blood Simple. It's a great film. If you buy the, uh, I don't know if it's the Blu-ray or the DVD, but if you buy it, uh, whatever format it came out in, it features an audio commentary by a film historian, and that guy is not real. That's an actor they hired to play a film I have I have seen that. I've seen that. Isn't there some kind of intro, and it's like one of those masterpiece theaters, he's sitting in a chair near a fire or something along those yeah. lines? It's just they just hired a guy, just a guy that they've worked with before, and he's just he's playing a playing a character. Yeah, <laughs> like that's I love you know, kind of and of course Dylan himself did that in the in the Rolling Thunder documentary where half of it's made up. <laughs> Sharon Stone is telling some story that never happened, and exactly about Michael oh. Murphy playing a character from a HBO miniseries from thirty years ago, acting like he's a real person. So it's like it, I I agree wholeheartedly of this idea that. We need a little more of that. I, you know, yes, we don't want fake news. That's bad. But this idea that not everything has to be sort of all nailed down. Right. Uh, well, it's, it's entertainment, that. right? This is entertainment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just so, yeah. I mean, that, that story about meeting someone and, you know, there's, a, of course, yes, all these gypsies from all these different countries just happen to be there. And he's got a derby hat. Like, of course he does. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think the gypsies are even that hierarchical. I don't think they'd have a king of the gypsies, maybe <laughs> the king, king of his family. But yeah, I feel like they're as a nomadic culture. You know, there's probably any, anyone could say they're king or queen at any given time. That's great. It's a good there was story. a movie in the '70s called King of the Gypsies, and I'm betting Bob just saw that movie and that just stuck in his head. You know, yeah. it's just like okay, it's good King of the Gypsies. So anyway, the White Stripes. Uh, that that's uh, I listened to that that cover. What did you think of that that cover of the song? So I, I listened to a bunch of the covers, and you know they ran the gamut. I think that one is great. I also think the cover of ISIS on the same record is great. Um, they do it justice. Jack White can sing those uh, that high note that the opening in the opening phrase that not a lot of people can do. Yeah, I, I really like that cover. How'd you feel about it? It's it, it interest. It was very interesting, and I watched the, the video. And the video looks like a kind of like a silent film. It sort of had this sort of sped up footage. It feels very um, old west to me. That's just the vibe I got from it. Uh, even though I can't pinpoint anything specifically, that's like oh, that makes it sound like an old west. But just I got an old west vibe to it, and I thought that was interesting that he was sort of transposing the song from where Dylan is putting it in this kind of Middle Eastern feel. Uh, mm-hmm. When Jack White does it, it feels like a cowboy song in some ways. That's that's the sort of that's sort of the vibe I got from it. Interesting, yeah. And I, I learned just recently that the White Stripes are the only 21st century artist that Dylan himself has covered, at least to date, that we've heard when, with his cover of uh, "Ball and a Biscuit" that he did. Really, the only yeah. 21st? That's interesting. Huh. Yeah, I'd have to think about that, but that's. Sounds yeah, see if you can think of any something. others, but that's the only one we could come up with. A little discussion group we have on Dylan. So. Wow, that's pretty. Oh, that's pretty little cool. Tip for tat. All right. Any other covers? Uh, you know, Roger McGuinn and Calexico on uh, the "I'm Not There" soundtrack. Like, obviously, Roger does great covers and with the birds and solo of Dylan songs. But I don't know if you listened to this, but I did not like his cover of it. His soft, wavering voice it didn't suit it to me. The song, like it breathes darkness it feels like a dark song it's hot mm. heavy and dark and the vocal needs to cut like a knife and i didn't think mcginn's did unfortunately mm. okay uh were there any other ones that you really liked there was the one on the chimes of freedom record i'm blanking on it was steve earl 
I believe, oh, does it on the Chimes of Freedom record. I, I haven't heard that. Steve Verrell can do good cover. I actually quite liked Tom Jones. I have cover, I had to say. It was movie, <laughs> movie soundtrack material, maybe even a spy movie that had synth lines replicating Scarlet's violin. I, I thought it, w- it was pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty, again, it's, this is, uh, you know, a relatively um, obscure, I mean, it's obscure in that it wasn't a single and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like it was, you know, sort of lived beyond desire, but the fact that he put it on the Rolling Thunder review so prominently, I mean, yeah. he played it a lot that I think it, it sort of seeped into the culture a little bit more uh, than, than probably it might have of some other songs. Now, interesting, I love, it's not, he didn't do it for like on the hard, it's on the, the Hard Rain live album. It's not on that record. Um, no, surprisingly, yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's true. Of, of all the, the covers, though, the one I couldn't source, and I don't know, Rob, your connections might be much deeper than mine, I couldn't find that fabled Neil Young and Crazy Horse one. And I know it's been talked about on Dylan and Neil Young trading sites forever. Apparently a ballistic guitarist solo Neil Young does, but I haven't heard it. Did you manage to hear that? Or find no, that? no. I'm not even familiar with that. I didn't even know that that was even a thing that potentially existed. Too bad. Oh, interesting. We could have asked Neil when you saw him and <laughs> I, I didn't run into Neil in there for that was Joan Baez. Actually, that's right. Well, I should. I, I, you know, Neil Young came out on stage the one time I saw Bob. I guess I could have asked him at the time. Uh, <laughs> yes, because I had the chance to talk to Neil Young. Um, so yeah, I said it's it's an interesting song. It fits quite well in in the in the sort of context of of Desire. I mean, it's interesting that Bob pulled it out again in two thousand nine for just a couple of tryouts. Mm-hmm. I always wonder about that kind of stuff. I mean, I. I have said this on, on the show a bunch of times. Like if I ever had the chance to interview Bob, aside from the once I, you know, awakened, uh, I, I think I would just ask him about the nuts and bolts of the tour of what that, like, why do you make these, you know, like why, why, what, what, what gets you the, uh, the impetus to dig out an old song? I'd love to know the nuts and bolts of that stuff. You know, why is it in 2009, all of a sudden in Germany, he was like, Oh yeah, let's do this. Now, obviously he's rehearsed it with the band already. Maybe. But yeah, I just love, maybe, maybe, yeah, we don't even honest. really know. But I mean, I just love that idea that it's like he doesn't play it for ten years, and then two nights in two thousand nine, he plays it, and then you know, for fifteen years later, still not been played again. Yeah, agree. I, I, you have to wonder: does it come to him in dreams, a whim? Did, did he see a <laughs> cup of coffee that that decided decided to play it? Who knows? When you have a catalog like him, how it can happen. Maybe he's just not happy with how the set had been going. But yeah, I have to wonder for this next leg of Rough and Rowdy Way is what's going to get pulled out. And I wouldn't complain if that, that got on added to the set list. I know you would, but... <laughs> I would not complain about any song Bob Dylan chooses to play. I just, mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not in that headspace. I'm like, whatever, Bob, whatever you want to do, buddy. I, you know, it's all, it's all same, good. Same here. Like, he's the artist and let him do what he wants to do. Absolutely. So yeah, and you're saying apparently the the rumor mill is that he is the next leg of the Rough and Rowdy Ways tour is going to go down south, uh, and then presumably I'm sure he will swing back around into your neck of the woods. Maybe on on his you know he can stop at the house and pick a few things up or whatever he might need. Um, so I, I hope you get a chance to see him when he when he comes around. Yeah, no, I definitely will, and I might travel to to see him. Like depending how far, I didn't want to go to the east coast for this beginning of the tour but who knows we'll see what what the next leg is it's not been announced yet i checked just the other day and there's still no dates that i've no no it's got to be soon though i mean i would imagine uh taking a little bit of time off and then gonna gonna go back so uh well jesse uh, thank you so much for coming on to talk about one more cup of coffee i always kind of love it when someone really wants to set up i was again not stick up for but really wants to talk about a song that i'm you know kind of like eh, all right (laughs) because i'm like what are they hearing in this 
that maybe I'm not. And so I always find those conversations uh, really fascinating. So thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Before we end, though, I got to ask you, um, courtesy of the Pomegranate County Irregulars. Now, you are in a band. You've mentioned it. But if you got invited to a Bob Tribute concert and you're on first, what song would you perform? I've been dreading this question, Rob, because <laughs> there's so many songs I think of. I, I got to come up with one on this here. You know what I'm going to say? I'm going to say I and I. That's what I'm going to say. Ooh, that's okay. Wow, <laughs> that's uh... <laughs> all right. You can do like an up tempo version of, of I and I, or uh, kind of the way he does. I, I, think, I think I would do it even even slower. I just find that song really powerful and hypnotic and. I think the rumbling bass line in it is great. Um, yeah, it's not one of the most listened to Dylan songs out there, I wouldn't say. Um, definitely not a single, <laughs> to, to speak to your terms. But I find it really powerful, the, the, the whole lyrics, the, the melody of it, really strong. But uh, I would not try to do it like Dylan. Uh, to me, that's, that's folly. That's, that would be a fool's errand. So I would have to do something really unique to take on it. But uh, just think it's a, it's a beautiful song with like sublime imagery. So I don't know. I, as I said, I've struggled with this. I knew you were going to ask this question and I, I couldn't come up with a, a single great answer. So that's, that's, that's a, a great answer. No, there's, that's a great answer. No, there's any, no, it's, it's, it's meant to reveal something about you, Jesse. It's not, there's no right answer or wrong answer. And that's a, it's a great choice. Yeah, you know, you know, there's that, that, uh, Cohen story, how Leonard Cohen uh, asked Bob how long it took him to write that. And he's like, 15 minutes, which <laughs> I, I don't buy it at all. <laughs> yeah, especially if you've read Terry Gann's book on it. But uh, And Leonard Cohen, how long for Hallelujah? 10 years or something? What is it, a decade? So, <laughs> a little more honest. I have to think if you're uh, in the songwriting business, as those two guys were, uh, you know, and you want to kind of just do a little dig at somebody, you'd tell somebody, oh, it took you 15 minutes to write that song. <laughs> Exactly. You know, yeah. exactly. It's, it's pure Dylan. It represents him so well. And you could see the twinkle in his eyes. Yep. He said that. That's all, he's, that's all you're getting, Lenny. Sorry. Completely. Completely. So, well, Jesse, again, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? Um, I'm not the most active internet person, but where I'm most active, I, I tend to, I, I have a little practice to myself of posting like a work in progress song or poem a day, which is not complete, but it's just to keep myself, my feet to the fire is on Instagram. I have an account called soul operator. That's S O L E operator. All right. Sounds good. Um, all right, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Of course you can find back episodes of pod Dylan, all the back episodes on our website, finewaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any podcatcher of your choice. And finally, if you want to support the fine water podcast network, just go to patreon.com slash FW podcast. And there you can unlock various rewards. One of which is to be name checked on the show of your choice. So big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutzel, George Doherty, Joaquin Meckel, and Paul Rother for their support of Pod Dylan. I very much appreciate it. That's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. I wasn't 100% sure he would come over. I, you know, I thought it might be just one of those passing things that happen after you've met somebody. And, but sure enough, he showed up when we, when we said he was going to show and and he brought his guitar with him. And he said he'd been, he'd just come back from, uh, I think it was Spain or the south of France, I'm not sure where, where he'd been for the summer. And he'd been involved with some gypsies and so on. And he said he'd written a couple of songs. So he played me what he'd written. Uh, I think because he wanted to give me some sense of the mood. And uh, I was very glad that he did because it, it had a lot to do with what we did afterwards. Uh, he'd written one more cup of coffee, 
And uh, I thought one more cup of coffee was just fantastic. I can only recommend to you that someday, if you're very lucky, you'll get a chance to be sitting three feet away from him when he sits and plays it. It's quite an extraordinary experience.